Hello and welcome to episode 4 of my podcast Stray Bullets in which I recount some of my experiences and as in this episode those of some of my colleagues. The form in which this account takes has of course been vastly encouraged by you the listener and providing me with extremely helpful feedback and so this episode continues an art of threads within which I am able to illustrate actual events which mostly went unnoticed or unrecorded, even unreported, during the Northern Ireland Troubles. Without wishing to invoke clichés, I nevertheless have altered names and identities of those involved. The actual events themselves remain unchanged, as entitled Nothing Personal, and involves the narrations, three narrations in fact, all voiced by myself of course, First character is Tommy, a professional IRA gunman, originally attached to Southdown Para, but he is now seconded to the Lower Falls Active Service Unit. The next is Charlotte, a junior nurse, working in the A&E department of the Royal Victoria Hospital, Belfast. And of course, a member of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, whose dialogue will be related in the first person. Thank you. The night was beginning to dissolve. Clouds shouldered one another. Each bore the iron light of the waking sun. I stood at the rear of the Land Rover, waiting until the last of my colleagues had clambered in. I'd been detailed guard duty up at the Royal Victoria Hospital after volunteering yesterday. It was a duty usually carried out by officers of the full-time reserve. A plain closed turn. A number of extra awards had come on this week. Not for reasons of any terrorist outrage for a change, but simply that the number of patients who were members of the security forces serving in Ulster had increased that week. That happens. Some were in for minor operations, others transferred from other hospitals for more specialist treatment and the like. So I'd said yes. When regular officers were asked to help bolster the numbers of guards, happened fairly frequently um, I'd shot my arm up I stood beside Carl he was a rear gunner of the Land Rover he watched with me as six of our colleagues sat and shifted themselves together in the Land Rover's rear he nodded to me and I stepped up and sat just to the left of the rear door on the passenger side the sharp metal edge Carl jumped in and sat opposite it was a tight squeeze but these changeovers often were. So we crowded in, seven of us sat in our civvies, grips or small backpacks perched on our laps, the rear doors clanked closed, and our little convoy of steel and huddled flesh set off towards the Royal Victoria Hospital. I tried resting my head back against the cold steel, the diesel droning of the engine smothering my thoughts. Behind us the drowsy light of a new day dripped down traceries of soft golden light, over the dull slates of terraces, filling the empty windows with bronze. I think a ward should be coming off tonight or tomorrow, said Wally, one of the old-timers. A reserve man, he always seemed to have his ear to the ground and instinctively knew the answer to something before the question was asked. Every section had its own Wally, as it were, and it was a fool who quickly dismissed their counsel. Wally's tone was drawl, but assured. Guys... Just then to get his appendix out, there followed a spurted discussion concerning Molly's instincts. 
how Mr. Appendicitis was a decent spud who was and a great goalie in a five-a-side team. Our Land Rover swung off the Donegal Road and onto the suitably named Bone Road, which took us up through the RVH complex several moments later and we were debussing from the Land Rovers before walking along the hospital's corridors where our powers would branch off towards their respective wards while our uniformed escorts kept an eye on the lifts and corridor junctions as well as seeing us safely to our respective wards. I had been detailed to ward just two flights of stairs up from the hospital's main corridor and since I was just a blow-in for the day it wasn't to be one of the hospital's permanent secure wards which were sat behind bulletproof doors with a small array of CCTV cameras surrounding them. No, I was with Jim, a reserve man from another section who was on overtime. So we got the ward with no security features whatsoever. Not even an ordinary room we could have settled into. No, in fact, we didn't even get to sit inside the ward at all. There was nowhere for us, so we would just have to make do with two plastic chairs just outside the ward's double doors and on the landing between the flights of stairs. I asked him to keep me right. He smiled and said that I would be fine, that it was better than ducking bullets outside. He lifted out the police radio from his bag, asked Control for a radio check. Satisfied when he heard Control respond that he was loud and clear. So now we just hunkered down into the shift. Just one shift, I told myself, then back to response duties tomorrow, back out onto the streets. I planted myself onto one of the seats, looked around at our bland surroundings, then stood and strolled over to the edge of the top stair of the flight rising up from the main corridor. The main corridor was so named because it was a, an arterial passageway through the hospital, uh, and off of which there was a number of wards. I could hear the bustle of voices and tread of feet begin to drift up the stairs to me. A myriad of disembodied sounds, unaware and unconcerned by my presence. I could live with this feeling of isolation very easily, I thought. Charlotte had to stop herself, just take time and gather her thoughts, breathe. Just my first week nursing an any, she told herself. She had already qualified as a nurse, but was interested in specialising in something, just what she didn't know yet. She sipped her coffee as she sat in the nurse's room, thumbing through the department's inventories. The sister had asked her to look through them and then check the cupboards, drawers and trolleys to see what was needed ordered. Thought about giving her mum a ring when she heard sister's voice, which was raised, announcing that a child, critical, cardiac, would be arriving in five minutes. It had already been a busy morning, tending several fractures and three elderly patients. Quick now, said the sister to Charlotte, as she caught her gaze. Charlotte walked quickly to a trauma room, which would receive the child. Two ANE doctors, plus a paediatric nurse, were already there, preparing equipment. Charlotte assisted, helping to ensure any necessary implements would be at hand. She'd wanted to call her parents, just to check on Aoife, her daughter, who was staying with them, while Charlotte had a room in Broadway Towers just at the bottom of the Donegal Road. 
Charlotte thought about going back home, mostly on her rest days. But she would get some good ground in here, she told herself, as she disinfected the bed. And I'll stick my transfer in. Then maybe, maybe me and Aoife get some somewhere of her own. Her parents had offered to help her with the deposit. Just had to find the right place. A drunk was arguing loudly with someone in the waiting area. His tone brittle, full of flame. <laughs> Most likely arguing with himself. If it's the character I'm thinking of, she thought. He'll have fallen somewhere, done himself an injury. Thoughts broken by the voice of a doctor who just entered the trauma room. Pediac, cardiac arrest. Four-year-old male. Uh, on way. Charlotte quickly glanced at the crash trolley, making sure it was ready. Two paediatric technicians came into the trauma room just as the ambulance pulled up outside. There was a brief silence. Dolph around those in the room. There were a few exchange glances. Then the familiar slap of the outer doors being thrust open and closed, followed by the clatter of the ambulance bed. And then Charlotte found herself looking down at the grey-faced child as voices child its young body jolting you know this fella then this this porter guy asked tommy he signed like that right tommy was stood in the front room of an empty house which gave a good view of the falls road pedestrian entrance to the royal victoria hospital the room smelt of damp carpet plaster dust there was no furniture tommy shifted from one foot to the other trying to settle the ache he felt in his legs. The once white wood chip ceiling was ivory coloured. Tommy was stood at one side of the room's bay window opposite Bino, who was leant against the wall, chewing over his reply, then saying to Tommy, Will you friggin' relax? It's all good. Smirking. Jaws went back to work on a piece of chewing gum, like two bony pistons and a bony face thought Tommy. He glanced back out the window, sunlight glinting off the roofs of passing cars. This was Bino's op, personally handed to him by a relative in Belfast command. Tommy was just along his backup triggerman in case the bile Bino lost his bottle or messed up the kill. Tommy could live with being backup. He'd no need to prove himself, already having a fair few scalps under his belt in jail time too. Well, he had the reputation amongst Belfast Para of being a bit sloppy when it came to jobs, but he'd obviously done a bit of whining to get this job, so it must be straightforward enough, thought Tommy. Anyway, orders are orders. Just waste one of the peelers in the RVH. Simple. Always a pleasure to blast one of those wannabe Brits working for the state. This peeler had made his choices, so now he was going to pay for them. Couldn't even call these friggers people... Nothing decent about them. Just give them a uniform and easy money and they'll go around happily beating anyone Irish. Well, nothing personal, mate. But whoever you turn out to be, 
this is your last day on earth. We'll head over in a couple of minutes, Bino said, spat out his gum, took out a Ruger revolver. From the waist pocket of his coat, opened that cylinder to check the rounds, thumbed it closed, then stuffed it back into his pocket. Tommy was carrying a sawn-off shotgun, plenty of noise in case they and create a furore to help them do so. He fingered the fourless cartridges in his pocket. He'd not need to reload. They'd have to have their backs against the wall if he did. But always good to have a few spur. You never know. He chuckled, in spite of the heavy thump of his heart, the dryness of his mouth. Clean job, he repeated. To himself, no more jail time. Bino grinned widely, pulled on a baseball cap and strode towards the front door. Tommy followed. Get this done in the next few hours and I'll be in Donegal in time to see the second half of the match in Feeney's Bar. Tonight, the hour along the road was cool, the drone of traffic and pad of feet on the pavement somehow reassuring. The pedestrian crossing was already beeping as they joined a number of people who were already crossing the falls towards the RVH. I hunkered down onto one of the plastic seats. Turns out our patient was a UDAR soldier. He was in for a few days to have an ankle injury repaired after he'd come off his motorbike. I'd bid farewell to both night shift guards as we relieved them. They left us with some of yesterday's newspapers to read, although Jim had the wherewithal to buy today's on the way to work. I tried to relax into the shift, just till the afternoon, and a break from normal patrolling, I told myself. A short time later, Jim glanced at his watch, told me he was going into the ward to find out if the UDR fella was to be moved, and if so, uh, where to? You never know, you might even be getting discharged today, said Jim. Then the ward door closed behind him, and I sat and listened to the dull drone of voices and the tread of shoes which rose up to me from the main corridor. Somehow the gradual bustle of people moving around was sort of comforting, always safer when there was lots of activity. Jim appeared through the doors, planted himself down on the seat. He smirked. Well, he started. He might be getting out this afternoon. Before three, I asked. Maybe. But it all just depends on what control says. They might tell us to go up to one of the secure wards and wait on the changeover if the crews are too busy to pick us up. Dead on, I replied, nodding. I just let Jim call the shots today. He was the most experienced of us. When it came to guard duties in the Royal, so I just opened one of the newspapers as Jim stood up again. Said he was going to find out if the tea trolley was in the ward yet. Promised a breakfast, if he could blag too, and strode back into the ward. I heard the clap of someone's shoes coming up the steps from the main corridor. I glanced up to see one of the hospital's porters briskly step onto the landing. I caught his eye, nodded an all right to him, but he shifted his gaze away from me. His expression unreadable, mumbled something, carried on his way into the ward. Just the way things are, I thought to myself. I'm not up here to make friends, and hatred just went by the territory, so to speak. Others were local, and to be fair, they weren't all bad. Occasionally there was the odd one who'd been friendly enough, but I guess they had to watch themselves too. Any rumour that they were seen fraternising with the police, especially in West Belfast, could have landed them in a killing room and then dumped at the side of some road, their body booby-trapped. 
all just for extra measure. The doors opened again, this time it was Jim carrying two paper plates of toast, again with a wide grin on his face. Gift, said Tommy coming back into the little storeroom just off the main corridor. Bino looked up, disinterested, coughed. The rooms are catching his throat. The room had been unlocked just as command said it would be. Tommy had put on one of the porter's jackets left in the room for them. A single strip light threw a milky glow and pale shadows around the walls. Tommy closed the door behind him, sat down at a rickety table beside Bino. Gift, he repeated. Two of them sat just outside the ward. We can do both without worrying about witnesses. I think once we do them, we go up to the next floor above and take the fire escape down and out onto the Grosvenor Road. Bino sniffed, said aye, sure that's what we've been told to do. The rumbacks all sorted. Fire escape, Grosvenor, dark blue van, jump in and it'll take us south to hold up till things blow over here. The room stank of the disinfectant that was slowly leaking from a plastic container in one of the far corners. There were two knocks at the door, a pause, then three more. Tommy flinched. His nerves always spiked during an op. Mon called Bino. Then to Tommy. Frank's sakes. It's only Twix. Twix was one of the porters. Their inside man, you might say. He was quite tall. Thin-faced, with deep-set eyes. Smirking. Tommy knew this guy to see. Saw him in the beehive a few times with some of the local active service unit. Tommy, I asked Twix, leaning back against the closed door. Tommy nodded affirmative. Twix chuckled. What the frig's going on with your heart, Bino? I bloody died it for the job. Tommy had noticed Bino's hair looked like he'd kicked it in black boot polish, but guessed he'd been disguising himself to throw off any possible witness accounts. Tommy had done the same. Only his beard grew fuller and let his fringe grow down, just over his eyes. A scarf and upturned collar would hide the rest. You need to do another walkthrough, asked Twix. No, we're good, said Tommy. What time you... Don't you worry, Twix, said Bino. You just go check the route is clear. Come back to us. Pronto either way. Right, Twix went back out. Bino shrugged, looked at Tommy, he said. He's a spacer but he knows the score. Ten minutes passed, then fifteen. No Twix. Where is that frigger, said Bino, before coughing again. Frigate, wait here, said Tommy. I'll go and have a scout along the corridor. If I don't like what I see, or think something's not right, I'll nip back, and the both of us hightail it out of here, okay? I'm sure Twix is all right, but he's no operator. Tommy felt the barrel of the sawn-off press against his left hip. He tucked it down the waistband of his jeans, put his hand in the pocket of his jacket and clasped the shotgun through the material, hiding its outline with his arm, crooked tightly against his side. He felt the heavy thump of his heart. Worst they could do is arrest you for possession, he told himself, imagining police lying in wait, but he dismissed the thought. He had a good feeling about this job, despite Twix getting lost somewhere. He stepped out of the room and cautiously made his way along the main corridor in the direction of A&E. If anything was up, he thought, that should give me enough time and enough scope to notice it.
Time of death, 10.03am, said the doctor who'd observed the monitor while one of the paediatric specialists had started giving the child chest compressions before stopping the procedure. The monitor had continued to flatline throughout. Charlotte began to fix the child's clothing as the doctors and specialists consulted with one another. Soon it was just Charlotte and two other nurses left in the room. The child's mother had just arrived and was currently being told of her child's death in the relative's room. The little boy suffered two further cardiac arrests on the table. As she'd helped work on the child, Charlotte had learned that he had somehow got hold of his granny's antidepressant tablets and had clambered under the table with them. It must have been the coffee table his grandmother had mentioned when she first came into the trauma room and she went into cardiac arrest. They had tried everything, but the little boy's heart had just refused to work and now Charlotte wanted to make sure he was cleaned up for his mother, been staring at the child, not really doing anything. You must be due a break. See you back here in 20 minutes or so, sure. She nodded, only managing the flickering of a smile. As she made her way past the treatment bays, her head felt light. She scolded herself for feeling slightly disorientated too. The work around the little boy had just become too intense, too claustrophobic almost. But this was A&E, and she'd tried telling herself the next child rushed into A&E would be saved. We can't save everyone, she thought, as she absently made her way in the direction of the main corridor. Jim had brought a small transistor radio with him. He'd radio Wilster on, volume down. He sat engrossed in a crossword. I'd skimmed through most of the day's papers, and now sat wishing I'd brought a novel or magazine to top my nose, stretch my shoulders back, saw the time was just after ten, asked Jim if he wanted anything from the shop on the main corridor. He sucked his lower lip, glanced at me, said, Would you get us a packet of mints? Any kind'll do. Jim fished in his pocket, but I waved the gesture away as I stood and trotted down the stairs. Needed a bit of a dander to wake myself up, I thought. Strolled along the corridor, ensuring his eyes did not meet those of any passers-by. But at the same time, his senses were scanning for any possible risk or threat which might have undermined the op. In the bottom of the stairwell, he'd soon ascend with Bino to go carry out the job. He was thinking he'd just go up as far as A&E before turning back and getting Bino. He was busy running every aspect of the job through his mind. When he glanced up, noticed one of the plainclothes peelers he was there to do, had just pranced out from the stairwell in front of him, thankfully walking in the same direction. Tommy had had time to recognise the peeler. Tommy slowed his pace until there was about ten feet between them. He thought about turning back, but decided to stay with the peeler, curious to see what he was at in case. They were about to move wards or something like that. It would be good to have a heads up, just in case there was a change of plans. More so now, since that order twix seemed to have vanished into thin air at the shop, and it gave me a bit of time to decide what I wanted. The shop wasn't enclosed. Its counter was open onto the main corridor and held an array of sweets, newspapers and some cartons of juice. I reached the end of the queue and turned to face the way I came, my gaze drifting across the top of the counter and, for a moment, back down the main corridor. It was there I noticed 
one of the porters glaring at me. I saw he seemed to hesitate for a moment, maybe distracted by his own thoughts. But no, then he continued to walk in my direction. Charlotte found herself in the queue for the shop. She decided a bit of chocolate would help. She found it hard to shake the thought from her mind that the little boy's mother would now most likely be looking down at his lifeless little body. Charlotte couldn't contemplate how the boy's mother would ever come to terms that her son had died from ingesting his grandmother's tablets. So cruel a death, thought Charlotte, thinking of her own daughter, of how she would feel if she were the mother of the wee boy. She shook her head, dismissed the thought, told herself she was a nurse. It was part of her job, after all, a small part. There's more safe than loss, she told herself, determined that she would focus on the saving and not become too attached to the lost. Fragmate, no, someone said loudly, the fear in their voice undeniable. It woke Charlotte from her thoughts in time. For her to realise, it was the voice of the fella standing directly in front of her. I dropped my gaze, still conscious of the porter's presence. I could see from the corner of my eye that he was now striding towards me. My chest tightened, my breath snatched. He's just going to say something smart, I told myself. So he knows I'm a peeler. He's seen me sat outside the ward upstairs. He just wants to come over and mouth off, make himself feel good or impress someone. Even so, I felt isolated, vulnerable. And above all, foolish. I knew my plain clothes colleagues used this shop when they were up garden awards. Maybe this has happened to them too. And and then he was stood only feet from me. I couldn't help but stare back at him. And in the space between us, he held a shotgun in his right hand, pointed at my chest. I heard my own voice, feeble, parched with fear, saying, No, no, mate as if my pathetic pleas would suddenly awaken him from killing me. There was no film of my life suddenly flickering through my mind. Everything else around us dissolved. Even the walls and ceiling seemed to powder in the air. All I could think of was how much it would hurt. Would the darkness come quickly? What it would be like to no longer exist? Tommy let the palm of his hand slide over the shoulder of the shotgun tightened his grip as he did so, finger hooking the trigger, carefully drawing it out. He didn't want to snatch the trigger, blow the side of his leg away. He knew the peeler had noticed him, but pleased him to see the colour drain from his quarry's face. It gave him a feeling of power. That's it, thought Tommy, aware of the peeler's sidelong glances. Take your medicine. Tommy kept the shotgun level with the peeler's stomach. He just needed to be almost within touching range before firing. Make sure the stomach took all of the blast. Don't want any shot hitting Sivvy. Make sure the peeler takes the full cartridge in the stomach. Myself having to force my right hand down towards my waist. It felt like it was made of steel, resisting my will. If I could just grab my rigger, maybe I'd be able to scare him or just get a round off. I felt nothing, nothing on my side. No rigor. My thoughts fragmented. An explosion of panic and confusion splintered them, set them racing through my mind, and all the while I sensed the shotgun moving closer to me. Amongst these fragments I glimpsed my rigor, still in its pancake holster, still on my bag, sat beside the chair, outside the ward. 
At that point I let go the reins of life. I couldn't move, run or speak. Every part of my body felt like it was shutting down in anticipation of my coming death. <clears throat> Tony had already decided in the corridor that if he got a chance to do this, Peter, he would take the opportunity when it presented itself. He might not get it again. Just blast him now. Then Scarper back for Bino and just shorten the run back a wee bit. It'll work out fine. The shotgun barrel nigh only inches from the peeler's chest. Just at the sweet spot. Charlotte glanced up, just as the man in front of her seemed as if he was going to step back onto her. He'd spoke to someone just moments earlier. Someone in front of him, she thought. And now she heard gasps and saw some people in the corridor flinch. Several quickened their pace as they strode on by, eyes darting to a point just in front of this man. Was someone collapsed, she thought, maybe fitting, or another cardiac arrest. The least she could do was help them, get them into a recovery position or start compressions. Charlotte stepped partially out from behind this man, just enough to glimpse any commotion. She saw the porter, a scarf pulled up to the bridge of his nose, strands of dark hair clinging to his glistening forehead, and then she saw the gun he clutched. The end of its wide barrel pointed towards the man's chest. She thought it looked like an old-fashioned gun, its once dark metal scarred with silver. Neither of these men spoke, said nothing to one another, but she sensed her eyes held one another's in some sort of dialogue. Tommy began to squeeze the trigger, steadied the barrel with his left hand. Tommy felt a kind of elation, glad to see the fear in this peeler's eyes. It'll make this easier for them both. Nothing personally thought to himself. You're just a job. No interest in you. You're nothing to me. It was your choice to wear a uniform. Your choice. Tommy felt he'd wasted enough time. He squeezed hard on the trigger. The hammer clicked, followed by silence. Tommy cursed. No time to try the trigger again. The moment had passed, he knew it. Time to be smart and get out. People might get brave or just start to study what they could see of his face and clothes. Maybe just a little better. <clears throat> Those behind may still be unaware of what was going on. And so he turned on his heel and strode briskly back. Toward the room where Bino was. Just head down now. Shotgun back beneath his coat. Just open the door and shout for Bino to get out. No questions. Bino would realise the score quick enough. My stomach was knotted against the impact of the round, but it didn't come. I thought I was ready to die, but death didn't come. Just a dull click. That was all. I immediately felt dizzy, nauseous. I could only see the porter's back through an aura of colours, diminishing down the corridor. My eyes welled. My sight glazed. Voices became murmurs. I felt a hand touch my arm. 
an acid fist inside my throat. I collapsed onto my knees and puked. Charlotte heard a woman yell, He's been shot, he's been shot, as she helped the man back up onto his feet. His eyes were wide and he was breathing rapidly. As for the gunman, she didn't even realise he'd gone. Everything had just happened so fast. Charlotte began to doubt even what she'd actually seen. The man grunted something as if talking to himself and then started to walk away from her, unsteady on his feet at first, before finding his stride and pushing through a cluster of onlookers who gazed absently at him as he passed. Charlotte stood for a moment and then suddenly, as if the event was only a brief interruption of time, the chatter of voices rose again and flowed along the corridor. Later that evening, Charlotte finished her shift. Walking towards Broadway Towers, she reflected upon the little boy's face, how peaceful it looked as she was cleaning him up, his red T-bar shoes. She noticed the bracelet around his wrist with a small silver medallion. Leaning forward, she saw the boy's date of birth engraved on it. It was the same date of birth as her daughter. Before she'd finished her shift, she had been spoken to by the police. Not about the circumstances of the little boy's death, but about the men she had encountered earlier in the main corridor. She told the police the truth. She couldn't recall anything about the gunman, or exactly what had happened. Even the face of the man she had helped was all but lost to memory. Must have been a dud round, one of the policemen had told her, but beyond that she didn't inquire. She could only see the serene face of the little boy and find herself thinking of how only yesterday he would have been full of vigour and hungry for life. When do we lose the value for life, she asked herself. Seeing again the gun, maybe when we become nothing more than a hate in our eyes. Maybe then. This occurrence took place in the Royal Victoria Hospital, Belfast, in August 1987. The police officer involved went on to have a relatively uneventful career, given his near brush with death. His final years in the RUC before retirement was that of a custody sergeant. There was never enough evidence to justify the arrest and charge of either Tommy or Bino. Tommy would learn the nuances of making large bombs or city bombs as they came to be known. And today he owns his own business, which continues to be successful and very profitable. Bino was killed in a road traffic collision in 1993. Charlotte became a mental health nurse and now works as a psychiatrist. Thank you for listening. I hope to record a different occurrence every month. And next month, I'll extrapolate upon a tout or asset and their involvement in a gun attack on police where an officer was injured. Thank you.